We'll be listening to the gospel message from The Message. One time when Jesus went for a Sabbath meal with one of the top leaders of the Pharisees, all the guests had their eyes on him, watching his every move. Noticing how each had tried to elbow into the place of honor, he said, When someone invites you to dinner, don't take the place of honor. Somebody more important than you might have been invited to be the host. Then he'll come out and call out in front of everybody, You're in the wrong place. The place of honor belongs to this man. Red-faced, you'll have to make your way to the very last table, the only place left. When you're invited to dinner, go and sit at the last place. Then, when the host comes, he may very well say, Friend, come up to the front. That will give your dinner guests something to talk about. What I'm saying is, if you walk around with your nose in the air, you're going to end up flat on your face. But if you're content to be simply yourself, you will become more than yourself. Then he turned to the host. The next time you put on a dinner, don't just invite your friends and family and rich neighbors, the kind of people who will return the favor. Invite some people who never get invited out, the misfits from the wrong side of the tracks. You'll be and experience a blessing. They won't be able to return the favor, but the favor will be returned. Oh, how it will be returned at the resurrection of God's people. That triggered a response from one of the guests. How fortunate the one who gets to eat dinner in God's kingdom. Jesus followed up. Yes, for once, there was a man who threw a great dinner party and invited many. When it was time for dinner, he sent out to his servant to the invited he sent out his servant to the invited guests, saying, Come on in, the food's on the table. Then they all began to beg off, one after another, making excuses. The first said, I bought a piece of property, I need to look it over. Send my regrets. Another I just bought five teams of oxen, and I really need to check them out. Send my regrets. And yet another said, I just got married. I need to get home to my wife. The servant went back and told the master what had happened. He was outraged and told the servant, quickly, get out into the city and alleys. Collect all who look like they need a square meal, all the misfits, the homeless, the wretched you can lay your hands on, and bring them here. The servant reported back, Master, I did what you commanded, and there's still room. The master said, Then go to the country roads. Whoever you find, drag them in. I want my house full. Let me tell you, not one of those originally invited will be able to get so much as a bite at my dinner party. The word of God for the world. Thanks be God. This is my second conversational sermon. And you know what? I've always wanted to do a conversational sermon all my life about communion. 
because it seems a little crazy to have communion and have somebody telling you all about it rather than everybody talking about it at once. So I'm glad today to be able to do this. Um, Let me start by saying that in my home growing up, my mom ruled the kitchen and the dining room. Uh, Well, she pretty much ruled the house. Um, But particularly in the kitchen and the dining room, my mom was a rock star. But she had some strict table rules, too. They were simple, but completely necessary in her book. So here they are. Rule number one. We ate dinner whenever all four of us could actually sit down for it. If that was 5 p.m. or 10 p.m., it didn't matter. What mattered was that we all ate supper together, and you had better have a really good excuse to miss the family evening meal. Rule two, anyone and everyone was welcome at our table. I could call her as I left late on Wednesday afternoon, headed home from college for Thanksgiving break, and say, Mom, I've got two carloads of friends coming home with me. I hope that's okay. See you about 3 a.m., and um, I imagine we'll all be hungry. And she would laugh and say, be careful. Y'all want biscuits and gravy when you get in? I'm not lying. I never knew who was going to come home with my brother from football practice. But there was always enough to feed the hungry, offensive line of the Alamo Heights mules. (laughs) You heard that right. You can imagine I could invite my 75-voice youth choir into evening, um, excuse me, to our house for fellowship on a Sunday night after, e- after a choir practice in evening church, and I could tell my mom that we were doing that as she walked into the sanctuary for church that night, and that was perfectly okay with her. There were so many Sunday nights when a house full of hungry young people could be seen passing plates of homemade cookies from the kitchen to the dining room table while hands were reaching in to grab the cookies as they floated by. (laughs) I knew that Mom always had stockpiles of popcorn and lemonade and kept sausage balls and rolls of homemade cookies in her freezer in case we wanted to invite one or two or 75 of our friends over on the spur of the moment. Everyone in our youth choir, the Alamo Heights football team, and the Texas Tech Baptist Student Union called her mom because she welcomed and fed them. Rule number three. You needed to bring your sense of humor and a relaxed approach to time with you to the table. Hearty laughter was served along with delicious food, and we lingered over dessert and coffee, talking and laughing together a lot. Talking, laughing, sharing stories mattered more than whatever schedule needed keeping. Those simple rules, eat together, relax and laugh, everyone is welcome and there's enough to go around. That table etiquette in my house made meals special. Mom's lavish approach to hospitality has taught me a lot about what what it means to gather around the Lord's table, like we're doing here today. I tell you that story to pose two questions to you. And you can answer which one ever you want or both. But here they are. 
When you think about your own family growing up or your family right now, what mealtime, house rules, or rituals offer you insight about the sacred meal we share? The second question is, what meaning does gathering around this Lord's table hold for you? You can choose whichever one of those you want to answer. Um, Philip, have we got a mic? Yes. Take it Yep. What mealtime, house, rules, or rituals did you have growing up, or do you have now, that offer insight about the sacred meal that we share? Or what meaning does gathering around the table hold for you? We always had the rule that if there's something new on the table that we haven't tried, we had to try it. And to me, that says, in, in our sacred meal, don't be afraid to try something new. Try a new way to minister. Try a new way to receive the Holy Spirit. My childhood tradition included a candlelight meal every Friday night. And uh, I think that that perpetuates the idea that every meal is sacred. At our house, like yours, there was always enough for whoever was there. And it was the loaves and fishes. It is, it is not an old story. It is an active story. It's what we live on. It is necessary for life. And this is a way for us to share with each other. My house growing up was a lot like yours. And um, I do remember that before every meal, we said grace. And we always remember the people who didn't have a meal. And that's symbolizing world communion. I knew simply at my home and at my home now that there was going to be a rich and wholesome meal prepared for me and that says a lot I think that when Suzanne's home by herself she tends to uh, not fix a good meal for herself but (laughs) when I show up it's always rich and wholesome it's always worth it With my mother and my grandmother, I think it was always important, not only that the food be delicious, which it was, but they always, it was always served beautifully as well. 
welcome home, Anna. Thanks. <laughs> um, well, we always, like, you put your phone up, you put your book up, you put your papers up, so it's about, like, not being distracted and being mentally and physically present. Mm -hmm. And we have a lot of what I would think of as sort of stone soup moments. <laughs> that no matter what happens when you invite people over, somehow everything turns up and goes together. It just works. So meals together for, for me, uh, we, we, we make a point to, to do exactly what you say, which is I'll eat together whenever that is typically. And for me, it's about recognizing the hunger in me and the hunger in those around me and being blessed with their presence. <laughs> And this is where we work out. This is what I'm struggling with. This is what I'm celebrating. I remember one meal in particular when I was growing up. Um, my mom and dad and I were kind of being weird at the table like we usually are, just being ourselves. And we were really loud, and I don't know what was going on, but all of a sudden we heard a, a knock on our front door, and everybody looked at each other like, oh, no. And uh, I said, shh, everybody, act normal. <laughs> I just I think of the table, whether or not we practice it now because our kids are so little, but our, our table can get weird sometimes, and, and I like that. I like letting it hang out. It's nice. And speaking for those who grew up without that tradition uh, and can really appreciate the importance of that communion time together, that's important to keep in mind. <coughs> Um, my cousin's family had a great tradition, and they didn't, they call it returning thanks. They said a prayer after the meal as well as before the meal, and I always thought that made a whole lot of sense, and it kept people at the table. It's fresh on my mind. I would be remiss if I didn't think about that or say something about thinking about Cuba and visiting uh, the church there and how they shared their food so readily, so fully. And it was pretty easy for us Americans to see how little they had, but they never, they never held back on sharing everything they had. When I went to Cuba, we met the pig that we ate at the beginning of the week that we ate at the end of the week. Anybody else? There are a couple more questions, so we'll, get, we'll, we'll keep moving. I grew up in the branch of the Baptist tradition that held to the need for someone to make a profession of faith, to walk the aisle and give one's life to Christ before pulling up a chair in God's house for the Lord's Supper. I didn't really question this practice until soon after I became a full-time pastor. 
And I read a book during these early years of my ministry time called The Salvation and Nurture of the Child of God. This book rocked my theological world. The author, Temp Sparkman, made the claim that our faith develops through predictable stages based on our developmental and emotional needs. And the book made a case for allowing children full access to the communion table regardless of whether or not they were saved because growing children have a developmental need to know that they are beloved children of God and to know that they belong to the family of God. And to exclude them from sharing the Lord's Supper gives them the the unspoken message that they have to do something to be in God's family and to be welcome at God's table. And embeds in them the implicit message that God doesn't really love unconditionally. Sparta makes the case that it is in adolescence and early adulthood that we mature enough emotionally to make decisions about what faith we want to claim, what religion, if any, we want to practice, and whether or not we can make those necessary commitments to keep our side of the covenant we make with God. Sparkman claims that excluding children from the regular practices and sacraments of the faith community can serve to skew their ability to make this faith commitment later when they're developmentally ready. I was struggling to decide what I thought and felt about the claims this book was making, all of which seemed credible and rang true to me inside, really, but which ran counter to all that I had been taught and believed. At the same time, I was beginning a new pastoral ministry in a large urban church and parenting a very precocious preschooler. My dilemma came into full view one Sunday night when I was forced to take my four-year-old to a communion service because there was no childcare. As we came into the sanctuary, I told Madison he was about to see something that was new to him and that it was probably best if he didn't participate until we talked more about it at home that the elements that were passed would not be his to take. He seemed to understand. We... (laughs) That's key later. We walked in and chose a place to sit toward the back of the sanctuary where he could see, but also where we could make a hasty exit if need be. Notice where all of our families sit. (laughs) He sat through the service, listening quietly, which was a first, taking it all in in his curious, observant way. When the time came for communion, he sat up, and leaned in with great interest, watching intently everything that was happening. In that congregation, communion was served in shifts. First, the deacons passed trays down each aisle with the bread in the form of little chiclet-shaped squares. You know what I'm talking about. When all had been served and all had eaten our small little chiclet cracker, then the juice was passed in little trays full of sterile cups akin to shot glasses, (laughs) if I knew what those were. After all were served, then we drank the juice. Well, Madison looked up at me as the plate of bread squares neared our row and said, Mom, I know I'm not supposed to take that for God, but I'm really hungry. (laughs) 
don't you think God would be okay if I ate that because I'm hungry? (laughs) And so what would you do or say? Beaten at my own game, I said, well, I suppose you're right. I'll half my piece with you. Now, that's no small feat either to get that. (laughs) So I took a piece and I broke it and I gave him some. He ate his half and went. (laughs) Those bread squares really don't taste all that good and they do have a dubious aftertaste. So they started serving the trays of of cups. I could see his wheels turning. And he whispered again. I know I'm not supposed to have anything to drink for God. But that yucky cracker made me really thirsty. God wouldn't want me to be thirsty, would he? Can I have some of that drink? Knowing that the little chiclet with its aftertaste grew less desirable with grape juice... I said, okay, I'll share mine with you, but just this one time. He took the sip left in my cup, and sure enough, he made this horrified face and said, Ew, that taste is awful. He said this really loudly. But he didn't ask to take communion again until he was much older. I've reflected on that incident often in the last 25 years, critiquing my poor parenting, wondering about the theological and denominational issues this situation highlights, but mostly wondering what we teach our children about God and who belongs in God's family by our need to be doctrinally correct, our insistence on keeping all the human rules and strictures we have allowed to separate and sever our Christian community. Shouldn't we instead be intent on gathering everyone in from the highways and hedges, from whatever margins beyond which we find ourselves, or from whatever boundary lines we have drawn to keep undesirables out of our close communion? I thought about the stingy food, a chiclet and a little drop of juice given to the faithful remnant who bothered to show up on a Sunday night. I've compared that to the lavish table at my own house around which we lingered and feasted, laughed, and shared family love. There's something wrong with this picture, isn't there? What's really important to God when we gather around this banquet to which we have an open invitation? I think the scriptures for today hold some clues. So here's my next question for you. Based on your knowledge of God and based on the scriptures from Isaiah and from Luke's gospel that we read today, and get out your Bible if you need to and look at it, what do you think is really important to God when we gather around the Lord's table? In one word, I think open-handedness. But I've had, without reading anything, and much, much slower, and maybe 
grudgingly, more grudgingly than you. I've had that whole movement of my thinking about the openness of the table. Almost at the same time, I've seen other churches that I've been involved with moving in the other direction. And I think kin to that is this business of not just who can take the elements, but what condition your heart has to be in. And I remember there was some event here, and I don't even remember what it was, except that Katie Gash was here. And we talked about that business of somebody not being in a, quote, state of grace to go to the table. And Katie said, I think maybe she grew up Catholic. I'm not sure about that. But whatever the church was that she grew up in, there were rules like that. And she said what she had come to believe was that you know, the worse off you are in your heart, the more you need it. I was part of a church in Minneapolis um, that was very different. We, we shared a meal before we had church um, every Sunday night. And for communion, the children were included. And at first, that made me really uncomfortable. And yet you watched them go from rowdy and, and uh, you know, not understanding to reverent over the period of time. And they had a much better idea of what the table and what community looked like. I think the most important thing is the willingness to come. to be like. I can't find in the Bible where Jesus says, come unto me unless you are. Can't find it. Can't find where he says that I'm to love you only if you're white or black or purple. Um, Lisa did a great job this morning. I think that this is a symbol of what for me, when I go down, this is a symbol of what I'm supposed to be doing and what I am resurrendering that I will do in acceptance and in love for as many as I can find. I grew up Catholic, and there are more rules and regulations than anyone could keep track of. Um, we're baptized and I guess an equivalent of saved as infants and then receive First Communion after a year of instruction when you're about seven and then you commit yourself as an adult to your religion when you attain a, an age of reason if you could call 13 that. And uh, <laughs> I imagine that um, it was reported to a priest that there was a young mother who, when she received communion, which in our church was as typical for Catholic churches, is a, a thin wafer, um, would snap off a piece 
and give it to her young child. Mm. And of course, this person was up in arms about this, reported it to a very dear, dear priest who was very um, wise, who told her that, um, do you think that it is God's wish that you estrange this woman and her child from church by shaming her? And isn't that counter to what we're doing here? I think um, many of us have grown up uh, with the notion that when we take the body and blood of Christ, that we are somehow honoring Christ's sacrifice, which we are. But in a sense, when Christ offered his body and blood, I think he was asking his followers to take his life into their own lives. And that we ought to think about that. That when we come to the table, we're really taking Jesus into ourselves. And uh, that we have to do that in a, in a, a total and meaningful way. I was thinking about a, a story about people, um, I think there were people in, in Nepal uh, where they were, the public health officials were really trying to get them to use even outdoor plumbing um, just for the health of themselves and their community, but just that maybe a quarter, a third of the people just were resistant. They didn't see the benefit of the use of it. And it was, I, I think looking back, I, I, my childhood was... Um, Communion was, communion was a, a, a contrast to, I think, the usual where food was about self. It was about just meeting your basic animal desire of, of taking care of yourself, of getting calories. Of, and, and it wasn't the big family sit down, the ritual. But there was something special about communion that, that translated to a little bit more of the, the, the big family dinners or the even just lunch with friends as you grew older and realized that there was a difference in sort of seeing what serves yourself as far as getting what you need versus doing something in a community and being with other people and understanding the the importance uh, that something is set apart there. When we started here, it was important to me to find a place where everyone could take communion. And we had done that in my church when I was a kid, but it was the little cubes and the <laughs> little glasses, and it was all very separate. So it was really special to me that here someone spoke your name and you, you went to the front to take communion. And still, I had to readjust my thinking the first time Aaron and Miriam came blasting out after church with the rest of the communion <laughs> bread. And they're, and they're just like ripping off hunks of bread. And I said, oh, no, no, that's the communion bread. You know? And they looked at me, both of them, and in Miriam's infinite wisdom, she said, what? It's good, and we're hungry. <laughs> and I was like, 
yeah, what, what do I really expect that I want to have happen with the rest of the communion bread? It's good, and we're hungry, you know? There's a song in, in the musical Cotton Patch Gospel that goes, one of the lines is, this doesn't make much sense, what's going on here? And right after it, there's a line from one of the actors that says, just go ahead and do it, boys, it will make him happy. This table in God's house disrupts and subverts all our familiar and safe rules of Christian table etiquette and social engagement. This table issues a call to radical welcome, belonging, humility, responsibility, and hospitality. You have to show up recognizing that you are not the master of the table, but the welcome guest. And that you are given a seat by God's lavish grace. You don't have to be good enough or smart enough or a certain color or status. You don't have to be cleaned up or have it together or love the right people or have the right things. This is not our table. We don't get to make the invitation list. This is God's house, God's table, a table of radical hospitality. So as we prepare to approach the table today, I want you to consider these thoughts from a blog post entitled Radical Hospitality and Holy Disruption by Christine Valters Paintner. She says, The rule of the community of St. Benedict says, Let all guests who arrive be received as Christ, for Christ is going to say, I was a stranger and you welcomed me. This is a foundational expression of the principle of hospitality at work. I am called to welcome every stranger as the face of the divine. This means that everything that seems strange, foreign, or uncomfortable is the place where God especially shimmers forth. This hospitality applies to those who arrive at the door to my outer world in terms of people and experiences I find difficult or challenging, but equally important, Painter continues, Benedict is also pointing to an inner kind of hospitality because hospitality begins in the inner life. So here's one last question. What happens to our understanding of the Lord's table when we offer God the place of honor at the table of our own heart? In other words, how does opening to God inwardly affect our outward hospitality? What happens to our understanding of the Lord's table when we offer God the place of honor at the table of our own heart? I think it's important, for me at least, to realize that communion is not a sacrament, but a communion. And it cannot just be something you do by yourself in your bedroom or somewhere. It always has to be in company with others, because it's always part of sharing with others. And that's the essence of the Christian faith, that it is a faith for others, for all. It's not an individualized matter. And keeping communion in just individually or closed uh, misses the point and misses the real message there. It is a way that we share our feeling of Christian community with other people. And as been one who's been in many places in the world, I can, I can testify to that. In that way, I feel a oneness with the people I am with. And that's what we need to always encourage here, that we 
have a oneness uh, of, of feeling of some kind of, uh, and oneness with Christ. Anybody else? Um, you have to embrace the fact that that might be very uncomfortable at some point. God might have to see the dirt in the corner. Um, we've, we've talked a lot about being inclusive and um, including others. I think it's important to learn how to be a good guest, too. Um, our kids are pretty, grandkids, as everybody knows, can be pretty disruptive, and meals were pretty disruptive. And so finally, one night, we decided we would let the kids be the host. And we explained how to be a good host, how to engage everybody in the conversation, how to change the conversation if there was a disagreement. And they got it. <laughs> and it was the best meal we ever had. <laughs> I guess I think it's uh, being willing to be on someone else's ride. And what I mean by that is that it's, it is no longer about you. And in sitting at a table where God is the host, I feel like there's a spirit of obedience. And with that comes like a kind of a joyful peace. Um, but I'm with, I'm with Price back there. It can be pretty uncomfortable. <laughs> If we waited until the house was clean to ever invite anybody over, we, we'd never have anybody over. <laughs> so my point is this, you know, if, if I waited to, to go to God until I had all my ducks in a row, that takes away my, my ability to, to be humble and admit that I am broken. communion meant to you and uh, my first thought was you know it was so negative I thought don't even share that because it was um, you know the the minister who I dearly loved would all would it seems like it seems like he would always read the scripture uh, or quote the scripture anyone who comes to the table without examining his heart drink or eats and drinks damnation into his own soul or something like that and so did I take communion with gravity? <laughs> you know, because it was something that I thought, well, I've got a responsibility here. I better clean up. What have I not confessed? Or, you know, so it was almost, and it was serious. You know, the men led everything, and the rules were this, and you followed it, and that was that. You know, but anyway, this makes this so refreshing. It's probably proof texted. But yes, it is. I, 
I know we're running long today, um, but th- it's y'all's fault, not mine today. <laughs> Paintner goes on to say this. Instead of thinking that God appears only in what's familiar, only in feelings, people, and situations that make us feel comfortable and safe or look like us, hospitality calls on us to extend ourselves to risk. It's the moments that break us open, that move us beyond what is our conventional or familiar, that strip the illusion of safety and security from our fingers, in which we begin to plumb the depths of the holy within and around us. She goes on to say, most of us don't want God on these terms, but on our own terms. We try to domesticate the sacred into prayers and doctrines that follow our own rules. We want to understand why things happen as they do, so we create trite responses to people in suffering. But the divine is that power which disrupts everything. So what if our practice were to court this holy disruption? To welcome in everything which challenges our perspectives on how the world works, which upsets all the plans we have for ourselves and turns them on their heads? And then she concludes, when we practice this kind of radical hospitality to all the ways holy disruption arises in our lives, we make room for the possibility that fear does not have to compel our every response. We begin to experience more kindness to everything that feels difficult within us, and this begins to flow outward to others. We no longer feel compelled to limit who might be included in the realm of God's love, and we cling less tightly to our own agendas. We begin to see that God is so much bigger than our own imagining, that we talk with more humility And we are willing to consider that we might just miss the mark from time to time ourselves. Peyton reminds us that there is a table over which you do have control. That is the table that sits in the dining room of your own heart. The table where you can invite this divine, lavish, grace-filled presence to dine. You don't have to clean up. You just have to show up. You don't have to pretty up. You just have to welcome the Holy One in. And in so doing, you can learn that the Holy One welcomes everybody. The wayward, homeless, broken, confused, lonely person that lives in your own heart or down the street or in another corner of the globe. When that sinks into your very soul, you see with new eyes and you are never the same. Because you house the image of God inside you. You are a part of the body of Christ in this world. You are forgiven to forgive. You are graced to share grace. You are healed to share healing. How fortunate the one that gets to eat dinner in God's kingdom.